0: Hi, and welcome to the Value Through Vulnerability podcast. I'm your host, Gary Turner. Thank you for joining today. Today, I'm very excited to bring you the penultimate in this series of Have Courage conversations, this time with David Berkus. He is a best-selling author, sought after the keynote speaker, and his newest book, Friend of a Friend, offers readers a new perspective on how to grow their networks and build connections. Three of the major takeaways that I took from this conversation personally were the importance of courageous sharing, so it does take vulnerability um, to share openly what matters to us. Um, Also, going first with trust, that was something that I really, really enjoyed learning about and if you think about your own experience, yeah, I do quite find, I find quite often it's quite reciprocal, you tend to lean in first, people do tend to, to trust you back and I also liked him speaking about diverse networks. He comments that diversity is a network problem, and I think that's so, so powerful. So, yeah, so much more in this conversation. I think you'll get so much out of it as well. So thank you for joining us in conversation. Um, if you want to contact or connect with David, you can find his details both within the show notes of this podcast but also within the free ebook that you'll find a link to within the show notes as well. That ebook is completely free and includes all 23 of the interviews um, embedded, plus the three learnings, my personal learnings per interview. So share that with your family, your friends, your work colleagues. It's out there. It's my way of paying it forward uh, by pulling this um, ebook together. Um, and we'd love to hear from you if anything resonates via different social media channels or directly. So until the final conversation, if you've been with us in part or in full throughout these conversations, thank you so much for joining us and uh, we really hope they're serving you. Welcome to the Have Courage, Get Out of Your Own Way, and Unleash the Potential of the Inner, Inner You Summit. Today, I'm really grateful to welcome David Burkes onto the discussion. So hello there, David. How are you? Oh,
1: thank you so much for having me. I'm doing great.
0: Fantastic. Well, look, thank you so much for joining. Just, just as we get going, I know that you're a, a fairly popular chap in, a, in your space, but just in case there's someone that hasn't heard of you, would you mind giving a bit of a lowdown? So who is David? What are you passionate about? And what's your, uh, your field of expertise?
1: Yeah, so uh, the, the easiest way to describe it is that my goal is to help people do their best work ever. Um, so primarily, I am an organizational psychologist by training, a writer by profession, and the goal is to sort of blend those two things, to take insights from social science that help people uh, improve their, their work life, their creativity, their innovation, their networking, uh, whatever it is. I'm trying to drag good ideas that can help the workplace, drag them out of the ivory tower, put them in the corner office or the co-working space or the coffee shop, wherever work gets done.
0: That's amazing. Just, just out of interest, where did that come from for you? Has that been something that sort of come from sort of early stage? Is it something that's quite recent? What, how did that come out? Uh, from, how did that come up for you?
1: It's sort of both end, right? So the, so the weird thing is that I've known I wanted to be a writer since I was probably 14 years old, right? I had no idea at 14 that it would be a social science-based business book writer. None. Like, I, when you're 14 years old, all you know of nonfiction as a whole are, like, boring textbooks, right? Um, and it doesn't even occur to you that there are people's names on those textbooks. So, you know, you, I come in thinking fiction. Do you want to be literary fiction? Do you want to be trade fiction, blah, blah, blah. And I went to university for uh, English for, to study writing, to study creative writing. And it was in university that I started reading a couple um, creative nonfiction essays, started reading some of Gladwell's uh, New Yorker essays, eventually read The Tipping Point, because that had just come out when I was in university, and was just fascinated with this line of research, the people like Gladwell, or Daniel Pink, or Chip and Dan Heath, um, those people. And I thought, this is not only are these people telling a great story, but they're providing something that's, that's way more helpful than just like another spy thriller, or another you know, coming of age memoir or whatever else you could write. And I mean, secretly, I also noticed that those people tended to eat better and, and, you know, live a little bit better off than the novelists. But a lot of it was that idea of like, wow, you can use all of the storytelling to really kind of help a lot of people. And so I went to graduate school for organizational psychology. The goal was to sort of build a platform and stop, start writing uh, because I was married to a medical student, I, graduate school lasted a really long time and I came out with a doctorate too. And suddenly the easiest thing to do was to go into university. And so I started teaching. I, I taught full time in a business school for six years. I still have an appointment at the same school, but I only teach one or two classes a semester um, because I've really been able to do this writing thing full time, which again, so long answer to your question, but it really is true. It's been the goal for the last two decades of my life to become but man, it was a winding path I wasn't planning on.
0: <laughs> I just love this mix, though. This mix of professor, this mix of keynote speaker, this this mix of, you know, leadership. I 'm not want to use the word guru. But, you know, ultimately, you know, you're a well-known name, David. Credit Credit to you. How do you oh. merge those three things together and... You know do they fuel your passion ultimately as as a sort of combined effort as it were?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it it took me a long time to really settle on that idea of best work ever, and those the line about um, ivory tower into the corner office. Those are practice lines. You could probably tell, um, because it really I was trying to find the through line. What what Pam Slim would call that sort of line that goes through your body of work, and that's really what it is. Is I see my role in the universe as translating really good ideas from the world of academia. that There are some academics that do a really good job doing that, but most do not. Mm-hmm. And so there's a place for, I'm, truthfully I'm a pretty terrible researcher, so there's a place for people that can translate someone else's research into here's what you need to know in terms of practice. And that, I'm much more passionate about that, which means that's writing more, that's speaking more, even in the academic side, I'm much more in the undergraduate classroom or uh, the entry-level MBA management class classroom talking about that, that I am supervising PhD students or stuff like that. Because, again, what my goal is is to bring good ideas from one sphere to the other. You don't do that by just hanging out in the academic sphere. And so that's kind of how I see them as, as all related. It's, it doesn't feel like multiple plate spinning. It feels like a couple different ways that I'm acting out of, uh, for lack of a better term, purpose.
0: No, amazing. If you if was going to define that purpose for the listeners, what, what does that look like for you?
1: So again, I, I, I often define it as that line about I'm trying to help people do their best work ever. Um, specifically right. to the work environment, I I don't know nothing about parenting or marriage. I have two kids and I am married, but I'm never going to write a book about that. I don't know how to develop you into a top athlete or anything like I, That's not my sphere. But if it happens to be sort of work in a professional setting, that's where I get energized about helping people figure out. And, and in truth, I mean... That's where most people are spending 40, 50 hours a week of their lives. It's a pretty important section of their life. So I feel like you can draw a lot of meaning from helping people in that area as well.
0: Oh, brilliant. Just out of interest, as we move forward through this conversation, I'm really interested, as you know, the, the summit's talking about have courage. Is there a particular aspect of that journey of yours through your education, whether it be being a professor into the sort of, you know, working with the leadership teams, where have you had to demonstrate the most courage as David Burkus? if there's something that jumps out for you?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think in terms of the life building the life as an author and a speaker and what have you, um, and I'm not the first person to talk about this, most notably probably is the Seth Godin and his idea of waiting to get picked versus choosing yourself, um, or maybe choose, choose yourself as James Altucher. There's a lot of people that have written about this idea, and that was probably the biggest one. You know, when you are you go to university, I mean the whole reason you would spend four years getting a degree in creative writing is because you think there is some game of choosing and auditioning and whatever to play. And, and the truth is there is. Where you're networked into the industry and what have you is, is really, really important. But the first thing is sort of working up the courage to actually start putting out that work and putting it out into the world. And so, you know, what, what a lot of people don't know is that I started doing that in, in late 2009, 2010. Um, 2010 was really the big year where we tried everything Um, we got I I started sort of this one website under this brand leader lab uh, more on that in a second that was a podcast uh, a blog a series of of attempts a series of attempts at videos an attempt at a print magazine all just throwing stuff against the leader lab wall and seeing what worked the only thing that really worked was the podcast so we've since like actually kind of wiped a lot more from the site the other reason we had to wipe a lot more from the site is that in doing all of this, I never bothered to do a trademark search. And so I got a very nice letter a couple years later from an attorney representing the man who owned the trademark leader lab. Um, and so I had to pivot very, very quickly. And it's another sort of courage moment. Like, what do you what do? You do? The, the beautiful thing is that if you do that whole choosing yourself, just deciding, okay, this is I'm gonna start putting content out in there into the world, even if you're doing it under this URL, this domain name, people start to learn you. And so the transition from Leader Lab to just forget it, let's just do it on davidberkus.com. Uh, now most of our content is some iteration of the word Burke, um, just because nobody can trademark, that's my name, you can't take it. <laughs> 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 uh, but it was a lot. it was a lot of that. And so I think it's a, it's a great testament to exactly what you're talking about with, with taking courage This idea that if you're sitting around waiting to just be picked because that is the safer play, it might never happen. On the other hand, if you start putting that content out into the world, it takes a lot of courage because as soon as you ship, as soon as you put content in the world, you're going to get judged, uh, whether it's positively or negatively. And the hope is that you take the negative, you learn from it, and you take the positive and you build an audience around it. And it's been eight years and it's going, it's going okay. I still have a, a lot of goals we haven't hit yet that'll probably require bigger sums of courage. But I'm, I was just looking at photos from about six years ago when I was doing interviews with people from my first book and thinking, man, it's been a wild ride the last five or six years. And that's probably a big reason why.
0: That's amazing. I don't By the, the way,
1: I've never told the whole sued or got a cease and desist letter about the trademark thing. So this is unique to your, to your platform, your content.
0: Amazing. Well, hopefully that means we're having a good conversation. Let's see. (laughs) Just out of interest, I'd like to segue into your new book, uh, Friend of a Friend, because I think there's quite a nice link there as well, for me anyway, around courage. Um, Mm. You speak quite a lot. I listened to a recent podcast between yourself and um, Peter Bregman, which I found really interesting, where you're talking about the power of weak ties and a whole range of other things. Do you feel that courage plays a part in being effective as part of a networking sort of approach to some extent?
1: i do i mean i think to be honest with you i think a lot of people uh feel like networking requires too much courage and that's because they've got a bad approach to networking like most people are already turned off by the fact that we've said that word like four or five times right it's a it's a word that makes people shrill makes people feel uncomfortable whether you're an introvert or an extrovert right the only difference is extroverts like they can work the room. But all of us, when we think networking, we think of like this room full of strangers. We think about having to have the courage to sort of summon that and, uh, and, and work that room and collect business cards and shake hands and kiss babies or whatever. Um, and, and the truth is, I mean, the truth is so many of us think that way. Or like we read Dale Carnegie or we read uh, one of the other sort of networking advice books. And then we're in that room and we're trying to apply that advice. And we just feel like sleazy and weird and inauthentic. And nothing I can help you, truthfully, I can't give you any advice on how to summon the courage to not feel inauthentic because feeling inauthentic is a huge sign that you're doing the wrong thing, right? Uh, The reason is that advice is autobiographical. If you are in that moment trying to apply advice from somebody else's life, you're being inauthentic. You are literally being the other person right? So no wonder you feel sleazy and weird. In one study, they actually showed that imagining a networking situation made people have subconscious thoughts of aspiring to get clean. Networking literally makes people feel dirty, right? So yes, there very much is this courage approach thing that has to to happen. The difference is what I'm trying to do with friend of a friend a lot of times is to get people to see that I want a different definition of networking. Networking is not just running around meeting strangers, trying to work a room. Networking is anything that you do that helps you uh, understand the network that's around you, build new nodes or new connections in that network, or strengthen existing connections, right? And on that last note, that strengthening existing connections, that's where, you know, you referenced a prior interview where we talk a lot about weak ties, dormant ties, and people that are one degree the friend of a friend uh, away from you, Because that's your most most fertile ground for networking anyway. Most of your ROI in terms of new ideas, opportunities, introductions, whatever, are going to come from that. And it takes a whole lot less courage to reach out to most of those people because they're your friends. So, yes, there's a courage piece there. I also think we need to, like, take down the amount of courage it takes because we need to redefine what we're asking people to do when we say networking.
0: Do you know something? It really resonates with me. So I'm actually in sales as well as in a people role. So this totally resonates with me. And I think, what's, I guess where I'm coming at it from courage, David, to some extent, is actually the courage to be you, and not mm. and not the courage to be something that you're not. I think it's yeah. more courageous just to be true to yourself.
1: No, I agree. And and you know, again, I think this stems from the fact that, it, it, as it resonates with networking, is you know, we've got this. If you're in sales, especially, we've got this idea that you're supposed to go to BNI and you're supposed to go to the the little networking groups where everybody trades referrals and you just feel weird and transactional. And the reason is that you've been listening to somebody else. I mean, all, every every single networking book, except friend of a friend, every single networking book says the same thing, which is, I did this and it worked for me, so you should do this. Well, I have news for you. You're not the author of that book, right? And unless you ha- are in a similar situation, like a similar life stage, similar personality, similar industry, etc. I can't guarantee that advice is going to work for you. So you know, we took the approach of studying network science, studying the people who study 10, 20, 30,000 person large networks and seeing the way all of that interacts. Because if you can understand the network that you're already in, you can find a way to navigate that network that's, that is authentic and unique to you.
0: Mm. Yeah, this, this is exciting. I can, do you actually do a lot of work with sales organizations out of interest? Is that something that uh, pops up for you?
1: Not as much as I'd like. I'll tell you that. Okay, uh,
0: that's interesting.
1: That's interesting. <laughs> so we're starting to see it a little bit. I think you know when when friend friend of a friend's been out about six months, and for most people, I think it got seen as a as a a job hunting book, right? Which because when you say networking, that's what a lot of people think. But again, I'm in the same boat as you. I feel like any 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 part of business that relies on relationships. Spoiler alert: that's all of them. Uh, any part of business that requires. <laughs> Relationships requires networking. So we've been doing a little bit more than that. Interestingly enough, I've done a couple of different interviews in the uh, in the car business and car sales and, and what have you, which is not a field my 14-year-old self would have thought that he's speaking into, but it is definitely a field that needs a better understanding of sort of how networks and how communities work because so many of them are stuck in that let's just see who comes off the lot idea instead of thinking about how can I better understand the network that my customers are a part of and find a unique sort of cluster of, group, of that network to serve. Mm.
0: What I'm really intrigued with here, because I'm really sensing a sentiment of trust in all of this as well, you know, sort of trusting yourself, just trusting other people, just to be sort of human almost and yeah. get away from all of these masks and all of this over-engineering to some extent.
1: Yeah, so, so in network science, there's a term, um, I'm struggling to remember if it was coined by Robert Putnam or if he popularized it, but the researcher Robert Putnam called social capital. and and social capital is a way to describe the value of an existing network so communities and and the the correlation between social capital and, and trust by the way is huge right so in communities of high social capital you saw that those neighborhoods where everybody knows everybody you uh you don't mind running out of a cup of sugar or an egg because you know you can just walk one door over and knock on your neighbor's house or knock on your neighbor's door and and borrow it. You see most of the people in your community at regular functions, whether that's, you know, bowling league or a chamber of commerce event or a community group like a rotary or church or or synagogue or whatever it is. Um, Those are communities with strong social capital and trust sort of is correlated with that idea. And networks work, any network works the same way, right? So in an industry, there is definitely, as you start to sense, get a sense for the sort of the social capital in that industry, you almost immediately start to get a sense for who trusts who and who's on the periphery. Usually, networks, you can't really fake it. You really cannot. So the people who tend to be towards the center of the network and are connected to lots of different people, those people are usually incredibly trustworthy for that reason. There's there's a couple of uh, historical exceptions. Uh, the Medici's come to mind because they were just sort of weird sleazy power broker people, um, but in most networks, especially in a business context, the people in the center got to the center because they were trustworthy and they were trusting. And there's, a, there's also, a, we didn't get into it in front of a friend, but there's a ton of research by a man named Paul Zach, who I'm a huge fan of, who's done a lot of work on this trust piece. And one of the things that he talks about often is that trust is not earned or built, it's reciprocated. You have to trust other people, you trust yourself, right? but you have to trust other people. You have to put faith into them. They then feel trusted and are more likely to respond with trustworthy behavior. And you can't do that when you're faking it. You can't do that when you're inauthentic. It just doesn't work.
0: Yeah. So I've been on a bit of a crazy journey this this year myself, actually, around actively trying to meet more people, particularly Mm -hmm. that don't look like me. So people, different races, different backgrounds, different sectors of where they work, just to find out, you know, how do we see the world differently? Whether it be in people's yeah. sphere, whether it be in terms of how they approach business. And I think there's something around vulnerability in this as well, that sort of going first and going, you know saying, I'm gonna role model. Actually, right. I wanna meet this person, but I don't want anything in return, I'm just interested. Is that something yeah. that makes this part of your work as well?
1: Yeah, so, so you're describing a couple of different things. I'm, if I can get a little nerdy for a second, there's a fancy term, um, homophily or homophily, depending on how you use the English language. Um, I'm American, we invented the English language, so we... Started... <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally kidding. Uh, there's, there's only a few people that I can pull <laughs> lines like that on, and one would be an interviewer who is Brit. Uh, <laughs> so uh, homophily is this idea, I mean, it comes from that term, the Greek love of saying, right? You've heard it expressed as like, you know, birds of a feather flock together, like attracts like, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things we see in networks is that An actual kind of internal pull towards people who are are self-similar is actually the weaker uh, force. The stronger force is the way that networks just tend to cluster. So in other words, what I mean by that is that without, before you started this journey, you probably, all of your close contacts were people pretty similar to you. Maybe they didn't work in the exact same job, but they probably had the same background, same socioeconomic status, same schools. Um, probably either same profession or same industry, something like that, right? They all sort of clustered around each other. And if you, if you just allow your network to grow organically, which that's what most of us do, you just re- rely on the friend of a friend connections to sort of meet new people. The problem with that is that you're just going to get more self-similar people. So one researcher, Duncan Watts, and his grad student actually tracked a 30,000 person university over the course of a year and showed that people actually had more diverse networks at the start of the academic year than at the end of it because of this sort of self-similarity effect. It wasn't that they weren't trying. A university is a place to run into an amazingly diverse group of people. Not not as diverse as it probably should be, but at least much more diverse than what you came from, and yet people clustered off. And it wasn't necessarily because they just wanted to be around people like them. It was because the network sort of serves that. So, So there is that going first piece, and there's also just that idea of being deliberate about making those new connections. I I instruct a lot of people to really audit your network. Look at like the top 20, 25 people that you interact with the most, and then look at them from a couple different angles. Socioeconomic status, gender, race, ethnicity, college, profession, all of those sort of things, faith, et cetera. You'll probably find they're really similar to you. You might find in a group of 25, four people that are, are a little different from you. Right out of, out of 25. And that's okay. That's, that's what most people find when I ask them to do this. The trick is now you have those four. They're already in your close circle. So there's already a level of trust that's sort of built up. Those are the people that you can go first with. Those are the people that you can spend a deliberate amount, a, a, a disproportionate amount of time with, and then trust that those people will start serving you referrals, introductions, et cetera, that are self-similar to them, not to you. And over time, your network gets a little bit more diverse. If you just rely on sort of organic, I'm just going to meet people as I encounter them in life, your your network is probably getting less diverse over time instead of more. So I love what you've been on this journey that you've been on because it speaks to that deliberate effort to do it. And you do have to go first and you do have to get them to see you as stepping out in faith in order to trust that this isn't just somebody who's Who's doing it for some generic reason, right? All of those things go to play, but homophily is a strong force. I like to say it diversity. It turns out is a network problem, which means we have to see it holistically as a network in order to
0: solve it. Cool. That's that's really powerful. That's a really powerful apologies
1: effect. in advance for getting
0: super nerdy there. By the way, it, the worrying thing is I understood it, which is probably hey, okay. Concerning. Yeah, all right. it, it, was, it was layman's enough, David. <laughs> I think what's interesting, though, when you look at this world where there's so much evidence behind the value add of more diverse boards and networks and organisations, yet we're still challenged to actually see it in reality in organisations. It's really so. I'm wondering what's going on with the networks there. Is it just a case that those maybe the older thinkers or those that are baby boomers haven't quite caught up? with the effectiveness of networks with technology? Or? Well, so, I mean, so the interesting thing is
1: that some amount of clustering is actually good for humanity, right? Um, so we know, I mean, like what you were talking about, boards that have more women on them make better decisions, boards that are more diverse make better decisions, teams that are more diverse make better decisions. Uh, the writer Shane Snow actually has a brilliant book on this that just came out maybe a couple months ago called Dream Teams. It's all about um, that balance of diversity and trust. Um, so you've got that. On the other hand, like humans were, were built to cluster. We, we, were people, we were people that moved around in tribes of 25, 30, an extended tribe of 100, 150. Um, the other thing that you see is like speed of information travels fastest when there is a little bit of clustering. Like you think about your industry, it's easier to translate an idea when you speak the same jargon, right? So those things are always going to happen and they're human. So you can't sort of do away with them. I think it's just honestly a comfort issue. If you default to what's comfortable, what you know, for lack of a better term, you don't have courage to break out of, then you allow all these things to happen organically and you just get clustered and clustered and clustered over time. That's a bad thing for you, it's a bad thing for your team, but it's a result of the fact that some we're always gonna see some clustering in any society. The trick for you as an individual, is to learn how to move in and out of clusters, how to be a part of one, but also be a bridge to another two or three, what uh, the sociologist Ronald Burt would call the person that brokers structural holes or builds a bridge over these gaps in the network. That's where you can generate the most value for yourself, but also for other people. And it takes that sort of going back and forth. We're never going to do away with the clusters. The trick is we need more people who are moving back and forth between multiple.
0: No, that, that, that's great. You speak about this sort of network bridge. What, what, if you were going to give some advice to a listener right now, what one or two things could someone maybe experiment with to try and help themselves become a better bridge in terms of their network?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think the first thing we should say is depending on on where you are in your career and what have you, you may not be at the point where you can build a bridge. Right. Because remember, we have these clusters and you you, you need to be known in your little industry, your cluster, etc. But if you're getting to the point where every new person you meet is, like we talked about, is that other, uh, is just self-similar, then yeah, now it's time to start building a bridge. And I actually think, not to throw your strategy under the bus, although I don't know that much about it, I actually think one of the best strategies isn't to just go wide as quickly as possible, it's to pick an actual, a community that you wanna get known in, right? So pick another cluster, whether that be a, a cluster uh, ethnicity-wise, industry-wise, whether you just, like you're in marketing and you don't know anyone in legal and you consider them to be the enemy, like that's a really good sign, you should probably go get to know that cluster. And, and I say that for two reasons. One, it's just easier when you look at the way networks operate, but two, goes back to that trust piece. If you're seen inside that, that community, it's a little bit easier to get trusted by everyone else in the community. Than if you just have interactions with one person in that community because you're trying to meet five or six different people from different clusters at a time. Um, so I hope that makes sense. That would be my big thing. Is first the first step would be to decide whether or not you it's time to do that. If you still need to get to know people in your cluster, if you're you know three, four, five years into your career, that's probably what you should focus on. But then when you get to that point, okay, now it's time to pick a different cluster, pick another leg in the org chart, pick a different community, just pick some, some group of people that are different from you and forcibly kind of embed yourself in that community and then begin to act as that bridge, that introduction, making making connections back and forth between your
0: original community and the new one. So it sounds like there's just something about being genuinely curious without necessarily needing something back in return.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, definitely, definitely. I think, I think in addition to the genuinely curious, Idea. I think you've, I'm going to use the term deliberately curious, right? Because I think uh, this is something that I'll be honest, it's uncomfortable, right? There's going to be a lot of moment, like curiosity only goes until that first moment that you're really uncomfortable. And then courage comes in. And then that deliberate element um, comes in. So yeah, absolutely, and, and have that curiosity to the level that you're willing to be uncomfortable because you're definitely gonna be uncomfortable. First time you've ever hung around two or three lawyers and you started to hear their jargon, I bet you felt uncomfortable. I do too, I, I have too many lawyers, and I feel uncomfortable every time one talks to the other, right? So picture that, but even on a bigger scale depending on what cluster you're going after.
0: This is making me laugh a lot because I actually um, also work in a chemical distributor and uh, the, 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 um, the chemical names? Like this one. Oh yeah! Yeah, Oh yeah! yeah. No No, idea. No No
1: idea. Uh, You should try being married to a doctor because you've got the chemical names, and then apparently every body part that you that you and I know has a different name that's like the right one, right? (laughs) Uh, And I can't keep those straight. Like fingers, for example, are called phalanges. That's I I don't know who decided. Finger works
0: fine. you're certainly leaving you're certainly leaving the listeners with a with a phalange sort of reflection at the end of this conversation David so um as as we start to wrap up what um what would you say the number one if you're going to pick one particular bit of advice and it's just from your side if someone's going to listen to this conversation and go hang on I'm feeling like I do want to make more of a conscious and deliberate effort to meet someone that maybe doesn't look like me what, what would that bit of advice be? So again uh on the different
1: than me thing the the figuring out which cluster you want to embed in i i will say in terms of the one piece of advice from all of this network science that i would leave with people it's actually what we talked about right at the top that idea of strength and uh, strong weak and dormant ties you probably already know people that are very different from you that are in your circle that you just haven't talked to for a while because again humans we cluster And so that's probably the first thing to do is, you know, go to Facebook, look at your connections, scroll all the way down to the bottom where those people you haven't talked to for two or three years are, click on one of their names and reach back out to them or or LinkedIn, same thing, or Twitter, same thing, or, or the next time that person that you haven't talked to in two years pops into your head, send a really simple email, just tell them, Hey, I was thinking about you the other day because whatever triggered the thought and I hope you're doing well period, full stop. That's the S. sign off. That's the end. But that will lead to a conversation with that weak tie that you wouldn't have had if you had done your comfort zone thing, which is just go on your, your merry way. And if you can make a habit of doing that every, every week, two times a week, et cetera, you're going to get to understand the, the diversity of the network that's a little bit further out than your comfort zone that you already have. And that'll probably be the best place to start. And then you follow that path even further.
0: I love that. You, you spoke about this. We're already part of a network, so it's not to think over, overthink this, that actually we're trying to find this big etheral thing that we're not part of. We're already there. It's just trying to tap into what's already there.
1: Exactly. And, and most of us, when we think of our network, which is a terrible term anyway, we think way smaller than the number of people that we actually know.
0: That's brilliant. Well, look, for anyone that's listening, how can people reach out to you? What's the best ways to contact, contact you if they want to follow up this conversation?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, probably the easiest way is on the page that you're listening to this or whatever, there's probably links galore. But I'm fortunate, like I said, with the whole Burke thing, David <laughs> Burkus is a really rare name, B-U-R-K-U-S. So, davidburkus.com. David Burke on pretty much any social media handle. You can find me. And I, and I hope you do find me because this is a conversation that I think needs to, to keep going.
0: Fantastic. Well, look, thank you
1: for your time, David. All the very best. Oh, thank you so much. Cheers. Bye-bye. Done. How's that?